Welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of James. In this particular section, we are going to be looking at James 2, 1 through 13. And in this paragraph, James takes up the topic of favoritism. And the way the whole section works is like this. The very first verse, 2-1, states the topic of favoritism. Then in the next section, James gives an example uh, from his cultural context of one particular type of favoritism, not the only type, but one particular type, in his case, rich versus poor. And so he gives the example. And then coming out of the example, what James does beginning in verse uh, 4 is he begins to list off reasons why favoritism is wrong and goes against our Christian faith. And then at the end, he wraps it up with calling us once again to live out the law of love and to not practice favoritism. So that's sort of an overview of this section. So you have the topic, you have an example, you have a re- the reasons not to practice favoritism with a conclusion to practice the way of love because love and mercy is greater than judgment. All right, that is the paragraph. Now let's look at the details of this section. Why should we not practice favoritism? That's the question that he's going to answer. And he begins this in verse 1 by stating the topic. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. A couple notes out of that section before we even look at the topic. Just notice the way Jesus described. It's a beautiful description of Jesus by James, his half-brother, right? Like, think of this, that James, the brother of Jesus, is writing this, and he describes his brother this way. The Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious one, the the one of glory. Notice Jesus is his name. Christ is his title almost. It's Messiah. It's the anointed one, thus the idea of king. He's also called Lord, which may not be that surprising to us, but here in early writing by a Jew identifying the man Jesus as Lord, and the word Lord, kurios, was the regular translation for the Hebrew Yahweh in the Greek Old Testament. And so that's just striking and surprising for any Jew, yet alone one who you, you grew up with this one. He was your older brother, right? Your older sibling. And, and then he describes him as glorious, of glory, probably communicating that idea just of his power and his great, maybe even connecting it with the Shekinah glory of God that's uh, well known to the Jews from the Old Testament. That is a really magnificent, very glorious, very high description of Jesus. And apropos, I think, for the particular topic, if Jesus is this glorious, if Jesus is this magnificent, don't think of yourself all high and mighty, and don't get too caught up by people who present themselves all high and mighty. So I I do think the description is apropos for the topic, okay? And the topic, as he states, is personal favoritism. And that phrase, personal favoritism, is literally means to receive the face of. Remember, their culture is an honor and shame culture. There was well-known stratification of classes within their culture. And so um, receiving the face of was, was basically part of society. It was part of the culture. And yet every culture has their way of doing this. And so personal favoritism 
is part and parcel of the human problem. And so he says, don't hold your faith in Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. In other words, don't receive the face of, don't make decisions about people, don't uh, treat people on the basis of external appearances. That's the idea. That's the issue. That's the topic. And that can come in many forms um, in various cultures. The, the particular form that James is going to highlight is rich and poor because it was a well-known issue in the culture because it particularly impacted his original audience. And so he gives an illustration in verse 2 of uh, uh, one way favoritism could show out for them. And he does it sort of almost in extreme dramatic fashion, it seems, so that they can feel the force of it. So listen to his illustration. He says, for if a man, and the, the, the picture he's going to paint is of a church service. So you got to picture a church service. He says, for if a man comes into your assembly, note that word assembly, it's literally the word synagogue. It's not the word ecclesia for church, which is the most common word for assembly or church in the New Testament. It's the word synagogue. It's the Jewish word for gathering, which is very appropriate since James is a Jew writing to a congregation of Jewish believers in Jesus. He uses the Jewish word for gathering of a worship gathering, synagogue. So if a man comes into your assembly, your gathering, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes. So you have this man, he comes in, he's wearing a gold ring, he's dressed in fine, literally shiny clothes, all right? He, he's all uh, sparkly, he's looking good, right? He's, he's obviously wealthy, he's got the goods. And there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes. James uses uh, patokos in Greek for poor, which referred to the poorest of the poor. So you have this man in shiny clothes with a gold ring. He's wealthy, he's powerful, he has status, he has clout, his riches given him that, and his ring symbolizes that. And you have a extremely destitute man, a very poor man, a patokos man, the poorest of the poor, and he comes in in dirty clothes. So he, he just has one outfit. It's not shiny. It is filthy. It is smelly, right? He probably doesn't smell good. So you have these two extreme cases, super rich, super poor, um, one clean and shiny, one dirty. And so you, you have these two men come into your church service. And you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine and shiny clothes. You give him attention. He gets a special greeting, right? And everyone fawns over him. Oh, you're so glad he's there. You give special attention to him. And you say to him, oh, sit here. And you give him a, a good place, an honorable place, a nice seat, you know. And then you say to the poor man, you stand over there. You don't give him a place to sit. You stand over there. And you kind of put him off by himself in the corner. You stand over there, or maybe you sit down here at my footstool. You sit down here at my feet. You're not even worth giving a chair to. And so that's the illustration. Rich man, poor man, you treat them totally different based on simply their wealth and their clothes and all of that. Um, and so James asks as a follow-up to the illustration in verse 4, if you do that, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Note that the word distinction is from the same root word as the word judge. And so 
this judge and judging and distinction all come from the same word family. Very important to understand James's point, and you need to keep that in mind. So when we get down to the end of this whole section, and James talks about judgment, you remember distinctions, being judges, and all of that. And so you're making distinctions. You're making judgment calls about people based on appearances. And James says you've done that with evil motives. Literally with bad thinking is the idea. It has to do with your reasoning is out of whack. Your thinking and your reasoning and your judgment skills are poor. You're not thinking clearly about things. Now this illustration is very appropriate to James's cultural context because in James's world, there were closer to two classes of people than three, four, or whatever. There were really the rich and then the poor. And yes, there was some stratification among the poor, right? There was, you know, the poorest of the poor. And then there was maybe what we would almost call middle class, but they weren't a true middle class. They still were barely making ends meet and just surviving. And then there was the wealthy. And James has obviously highlighted the ultra wealthy. And in James's cultural context, the wealthy were really only about 1% of the population. And yet they controlled almost all the wealth they were the ones that owned the land, and most of the population worked for the wealthy. They were tenant farmers on their property, or they were servants for their businesses, or whatever it was. So most of the population, in some way, were controlled by, were obligated to, and worked for the wealthy, particularly the wealthy as described here, the ultra-wealthy. And so this illustration is very apropos for James's cultural context. And yet, we know that personal favoritism, James knew that personal favoritism took on many different forms regardless of uh, just, or other than just wealth. Sometimes in our cultural context, it could be education, for example. Somebody has a college degree and other people barely graduated high school or didn't graduate high school, high school and we have a sense of favoritism and treatment towards them. Or could be family background, could be... Uh, race and racial issues can lead to favoritism and making distinctions and treating people purely by the basis of appearance. Could be suburb versus ghetto. Um, simply could be your appearance. Super attractive, nice, well put together appearance and a little more slovenly or overweight appearance, right? We can make distinctions on a variety of different reasons and practice favoritism for that. James's point isn't to limit this to purely wealth uh, issues. He's really, ish, the topic is the broader topic of personal favoritism in all its various forms. The illustration is just one way it might show up, the way of wealth. Now, James then is going to deal with this particular kind of favoritism because it was so apropos in its cultural context. It was the most prominent way that his audience was experiencing this, and so the reasons he's going to give have to do specifically with wealth and poor, and they'll teach us some things about that, but it's certainly not the only way to practice favoritism. All right, with that then, let's look at the reasons that James gives for not practicing favoritism, particularly favoritism between wealth and poor. Listen to what he says, verse 5. He says, listen, my brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. 
Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? And so he asks really two sets of questions to challenge their thinking, since it's their thinking that's flawed and leading them to make judgment calls poorly. He wants to challenge their thinking, and he does so with two sets of questions. And notice the first set has to do with the poor and God's relationship to the poor. So verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to become rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to those who love him? That's the first question. Didn't God choose the poor? Um, to be rich in faith? Didn't God choose the poor to inherit his, his kingdom to those who love him? Indeed, James's audience could probably look around the room as those letters being read to them, and the vast majority of people in the audience are probably in, in some you know, part of that poor category. Most of the early Christians were the lowly and the poor. Most of Jesus' followers were from the lower end of the social spectrum. Um, and the reason for that is because the gospel promised so much good and so much hope and so much justice to the poor that the poor were the ones who flocked into the early church. And so the vast majority of the early church came from the poorer classes. And in fact, it's still largely true to this day that most followers of Jesus are common people. They're the average people. They're not the rich and the powerful. They're the averages. Partly just percentage-wise, that makes sense. It's a smaller percentage of the population that is the rich and powerful, and it's a larger percentage of the population that's more common and average, right? And so percentage-wise, that just makes sense. But also, uh, what seems to have been the case in Jesus' day, and historically what has been the case throughout church history, is that um, the gospel was such good news for the poor that the poor flocked to it, and the poor flocked to Jesus. Now, this raises a really important question, and that is this. Is poverty more spiritual? And uh, sometimes I think we can make the mistake of thinking being rich is bad, being poor is good, all of us should be poor so that we can follow Jesus. And yet that's not really the teaching of the New Testament. The teaching of the New Testament isn't so much having wealth is bad, and so get rid of it all. The teaching of the New Testament is that what you do with your wealth is really the key thing. And it goes on to make the point that we need to recognize wealth, riches, actually does pose a barrier to faith. To be rich doesn't necessarily make you unspiritual, and to be poor make you spiritual, but riches are a danger. And that's really important for us to keep in mind because in American society and in Western culture in general, we tend to think the good life is associated with having more. Jesus doesn't believe that, and, and thus we need to recognize the dangers of wealth. And and that's really the force of Jesus' teaching on giving away your wealth or being generous to the needy. It's to recognize that wealth is a danger. We need to hold it loosely. And the best way to guard against greed and guard against avarice is to be generous and ready to share. And you hear that, for example, in Paul's teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where 
Paul says, instruct those who are rich in this present world, not catch this, not to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't trust in it. Don't find your worth, value, and identity in it. Don't find your security in it. Don't fix your hope on the, excuse me, on the uncertainty of riches, but fix your hope on God, Paul goes on to say, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Notice that. There's the balance. Don't fix your hope on it, but you can enjoy them as a gift from God. And then he goes on to say, instruct them, instruct the rich to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves a treasure for that which is life indeed. And so that's the balance. Enjoy them as a gift. Be generous and ready to share. Don't fix your hope on them. And so the consistent teaching of the New Testament is that wealth is not in and of itself bad, but it is dangerous. We need to recognize the danger. And not only that, the uh, gospel offered so much good news to the poor that they, uh, they came into the gospel freely because of the value it attributed to them, to the the promise that it provided for them. And so uh, God's people have tended to be from the lower classes. And yet Jesus welcomed rich and poor alike. He welcomed people from across the social spectrum, from across the racial spectrum, from across the religious spectrum. Jesus welcomed all people. And that really is James's point here in James chapter 2 is don't have personal favoritism. That goes against the way of Jesus. Also notice there in verse 5 that the uh, poor are not welcomed into the kingdom because they're poor. That's really important. They are welcomed because they are rich in faith and they love God in verse 5. And so it's their faith and their love for God that has welcomed them into the kingdom, not their poverty. And so they are not spiritual. They're not uh, part of God's family because they're poor. They're part of it because of their faith and their love for God. Now, James goes on in continuing to ask these questions and challenge um, our thinking about personal favoritism. He goes on in verse 6 to say, but you have dishonored the poor man. And then he asked this question, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? In the uh, ancient world, the rich were allowed to inaugurate lawsuits, to initiate a lawsuit, and the poor were not. You couldn't initiate a lawsuit against a social superior, which seems totally backwards and really is and very unjust, but it's the way it worked. And so the rich are the ones that they can sue you. They are the ones that drag you into court. They're the ones that oppress you. In fact, in chapter 5, we'll hear some of the specific kinds of oppression that they're experiencing of the James, that the rich are uh, actually carrying out. And so that's part of the problem. If you're feeling oppressed, it's by the rich. And so why are you showing such favor to them? Why are you currying after uh, them, right? Don't do that. And so he says, do not they, the rich, don't they blaspheme the fair name, meaning the name of Jesus? Don't they blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? You're Christians. You're called by the name of Jesus. You're followers of him. And yet, more of the rich are, they're opposed to Jesus. They're blaspheming Jesus and the poor. And yet here you are in your church service pandering after them. Doesn't make sense. Don't do that. Then he goes on in verse 8, really carrying on his case against favoritism here and telling us, here's how you should live. Verse 8, he says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, the law from the king, the king's law is the idea, King Jesus, if you're fulfilling the royal law, according to scripture, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is a quote from Leviticus 19. It's a quote that Jesus said is the second greatest commandment. It is to mark the way of Jesus. You shall know them by their love for one another. And so James is simply highlighting that here. This is the royal law. This is the king's law. This is the law that God first laid down in Leviticus 19. It's the law that Jesus said is central to our relationships with others. So if you're practicing that, then you are doing well. The implication is that personal favoritism goes directly against the law of love. And so you are not practicing neighbor love that Jesus commanded if you are practicing personal favoritism. Those two don't mix. They don't go together. They are, they are mutually exclusive to one another. So if you're loving each other, you're not going to show favoritism, and thus you are doing well. You're doing what's good and beautiful and right. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, if you play favorites, right, if you receive people based on appearances and make distinctions, you are committing sin and are convicted by that royal law as transgressors. The word transgressor in distinction to sin, though there's obviously overlap between them, the word transgressor enunciates stepping out of bounds going against a very clear and specific instruction, not just a general sense of wrongdoing, but violating a specific command. That's a transgressor. And so we have a very specific command that makes favoritism wrong. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you're showing partiality, you're violating a very specific command, and thus you're sinning, and you're a transgressor. You're convicted. Whether you feel convicted or not isn't the issue. You are. You've broken the law. James goes on to emphasize that point in verse 10. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of it all. So you keep all these commands. You do good and do what's right and keep all of God's commands in every area, but you break just one command, you're still a lawbreaker. That's the point of verse 10. And so you're still a lawbreaker even if you only break one command. And so let's imagine the Ten Commandments, for example. You keep nine, you break one, you're still a lawbreaker. That's James's point. And so he gives some examples, and he actually pulls them from the Ten Commandments. Verse 11, for he who said, do not commit adultery, one of the Ten Commandments. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder, another one of the Ten Commandments. Now, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you've still become a transgressor of the law. You've still broken the law, and thus you're a lawbreaker. James is simply to highlight this point that you, you can't just excuse yourself and feel like, oh, I'm, I'm fine, I'm good for myself, I'm not really that bad of a person, I'm not a lawbreaker or a transgressor. You can't say that about yourself if you keep nine out of the Ten Commandments and still break one. In this case, he is highlighting this issue of loving your neighbor as yourself and favoritism. And so he says, in, in, now, if you do not commit adultery and you do commit murder, you're still a transgressor of the law. So he says in verse 12, speak, so speak, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The idea of that phrase, law of liberty, seems to be the law that brings freedom, the law that... Um, 
comes from freedom, the freedom that we have in Christ. And so live out that law, particularly in the law he's highlighting here is this commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You live as somebody who's going to be held accountable to that law to love your neighbor as yourself, which means you're not going to show favoritism. For he says in verse 13, for judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Remember, distinctions is a form of judgment, and it comes from that same root word. And so when we make distinctions, we are making judgments about other people. And um, James's point in verse 13 is that judgment leads to judgment, really. And mercy leads to mercy. Jesus said essentially the same thing. Judge not, lest you be judged. That's the way it works. You make distinctions about other people. You judge other people. Guess what? They are going to return judgment towards you. And they're going to make dis distinctions towards you. Judgment leads to judgment. And mercy, on the other hand, leads to mercy. Both in our relationships with other people and in our relationship with God, this is true. And so... That's why he says mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is this idea of compassion, this idea of caring for and taking pity on people and wanting to care for people and help people out and seeing things from their perspective. And so when we make distinctions, we are acting as judges. We are assuming the place of God. That's going to really provoke other people to judge us. In the long run, it will ultimately provoke God to judge us by the law of liberty. And so it's better for us to be people of mercy. Mercy is a specific expression of loving your neighbor as yourself. And so we love our neighbor as ourself. And that mercy will triumph over any form of distinction-making, personal favoritism, and judgment that finds its way in our heart. So the ultimate solution to personal favoritism and the judgments that it makes is to fill our heart with love and compassion and mercy for other people. So to summarize, personal favoritism is wrong because it puts us in the place of God and we act as the one who is going to evaluate and judge other people, which is a role only God should do. And it often causes us to make judgments contrary to God's very own kinds of judgment. And the solution, therefore, to uh, favoritism is to growing in love so that love fills our heart and we're able to love all people just as Jesus loved all people and just as Jesus loved us. When love fills our soul, we will not show favoritism or play favorites or make distinctions about people based on appearances. We will actually treat all people with mercy and compassion and kindness.